1: Find out more by going to wwwintelligencequaredcom forward slash partnerships. If you love the Squared podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening and early episodes too.
2: Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On the podcast today, Kubra Gamusai, the activist and author whose new book explores language and how it both shapes and distorts how we see the world. We often think of language as expressive, a way of opening doors, a tool for enhancing communication or creating new dialogue. But of course, a tool so powerful can also take us to unforeseen or unintended places. It can create narratives that become fixed, unhelpful or exclusionary. Tubra Gamusai is a writer and activist focusing on social justice and public discourse. Her new book is Speaking and Being, which looks at the power of words asking whether language creates freeing new spaces or whether new labels and words actually wall them off. Kubra's book was a bestseller in Germany where it was first published and the English edition is now hitting shelves. Our host for the discussion today is Danielle Sands, Senior Lecturer in Comparative Literature and Culture at Royal Holloway University in London, where she works across disciplines, bridging philosophy, literary studies and critical theory. Here's Danielle with more.
3: Welcome to Intelligence Squared Cooper. Thank you for having me Danielle. So the title of your book, uh, Speaking and Being, brings to mind a whole history of impenetrable philosophical tomes. But you're doing something quite different here. You're writing really accessibly and urgently about very contemporary political questions. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to write the book and how you settled on a title.
0: Initially I wanted to write about silence, the continuation of silence, how the first generation of immigrants were considered to be silent, quote-unquote, because they did not speak the language, how the second generation spoke the language but was not close enough to microphones, hence again was considered to be silent. And then the third generation spoke the language, had access to microphones, but was only allowed to speak on certain topics in certain roles. And to me, that was a continuation of silencing and silence. And so I wanted to write about that, but then I thought it was quite cynical to write about silence when in fact I could use this as an opportunity to speak. So after almost 10, 15 years in the public discourse and the political discourse, where I had been engaging in the very timely topics of our times, but having entered this from a very different perspective than some of the other people who had been joining these debates. I had been joining these debates from the perspective of those who saw the real life impact of those words. So I entered not out of curiosity, but out of the desire to create a discourse that would allow for us to exist. So to me, it was, there there was a lot more at stake than to some of the other participants of those debates. And after years and years of these very intense political debates where I did not see any constructive, productive outcome, where I was quite disillusioned by realising that it was a spectacle um, rather than an actual sincere interest in trying to solve the the topics we are discussing, I then wanted to understand and find out what is it that leads us to having these very destructive debates? And then I decided to dig as deep as possible. And then um, and I wanted to hit something hard enough that would be worthwhile working on. And to me, that was language. So the original title in German was Sprache und sein, language and being. And to me, that was... What this book had to be called because language does shape the way we think and perceive the world and sometimes it can rob us of our very existence and sometimes allow us to flourish and exist and explore this world.
3: Thanks I mean I'm thinking that the the decision to focus on speaking rather than silence feels like quite an optimistic decision and overall and and particularly coming to the end of the book and reading the acknowledgments it feels like quite an optimistic book in
0: difficult political circumstances. Do you think that's fair? I'm not sure about optimism, but it's definitely a hopeful book. So I know that there are very valid and legitimate reasons to be very pessimistic about our future. But I also think that hope is crucial and fundamental for any change. So I wouldn't call it optimistic, but definitely hopeful. And I do think, though, that hope is not only... Um, something we sometimes acquire, but I think it's fundamental and absolutely necessary. Hope is what allows us to pursue things and live.
3: I'm also interested in that shift from from the German title to the Mm. English
0: title. I mean, speaking
3: feels much more active and we can sort of see the agent in a way that we can't in the original German. Does
0: that feel like an important sort of shift as well? I thought it would, but then I realised... Sometimes when a book is being translated and I've done translation work before, um, the thoughts are also transformed and speaking and being feels just like the perfect fit. And um, yes, it is a lot more active. But I think in German, sprechen und sein wouldn't work because... Um, sein is a more static thing than Sprechen which would be a lot more active so there is some coherence in the German title and some uh, coherence in the in the English title so it works really well and it's one of the wondrous things about translation <laughs>
3: I mean, one of the things I'd
0: like you to talk a bit more about
3: is the way you talk about, um, the way you think about the duality of language and this tension between language as something which is incredibly generative and illuminating and has all of this potentially in lots of different ways and can be really reductive and really limiting. And that's something that sort of weaves right right through the book.
0: I wonder if you could sort of talk us through that, maybe give us some examples. Mm. This was a question that actually was one of the guiding questions throughout the book because I did want to find out can I exist in a language I was not meant to speak in but be spoken about and in the acknowledgement in the, in the English version I did uh, share some of the insights that I had gained through writing the book and so while I was struggling with this very um, with this question after having finished writing this book I was then asked in interviews to talk about the different emotions that I connected to each language. The journalist wanted me to share certain sound bites. And I felt uncomfortable doing so, but because I realized after having finished the book, it wasn't true anymore because I did not have these very stark connections to each language but I had come to the realisation that I could be in any language if I had the audacity or the courage to change the language, to allow and create space for myself and people like me within a language. That was inspired by a quote by James Baldwin, who... I'm paraphrasing him, but um, he, like many writers before and after him, was struggling with this very question too. Um, you know, working and writing in a language that also dehumanized people like him that did not have words to describe his experience, his perception of the world. So, as an Afro American writer, homosexual writer who left um, the US in the 60s to live in Paris, in France, in exile, and he, thought a lot about this question and and in one text he writes about this relationship to the English language and he says yes it might be the language's fault that it doesn't carry words to carry the weight of my experience but he says it might also be my fault because I've never learned to use language but only learned to imitate it and this I think is a very thin but fundamental difference. If we see language as a building that is ours and can be changed by all of us, although it is quite, um, you know, hard at one point and um, uh, um, you know has walls that can hurt us, uh, rooms where we can suffocate. We do also have the tools at hand to open doors, create new windows, tear down walls and um, build new extensions and work on this building so that it allows us to be and live in there and inhabit that space, inhabit that language. Um, And that only works if we don't just imitate the movements through this building but realise that we do have the tools to change this, that language is a tool and if we learn how to use it rather than just imitate the way people have been using this tool before us, I think we will be able to break out of that sort of cycle. And, um, and and that to me was the answer to this question. It is possible, but it takes a lot of courage, a lot of pain sometimes, and maybe years and years, and you might not live to see the outcome but certainly there will be some change.
3: And you talk about sort of learning about language in that way, learning about how to inhabit it differently in the process of writing the book. So is there something about the process of writing
0: that that sort
3: of sped up that, that learning for you?
0: I was having this conversation with a few other writers as well, because I did not write this book with answers, but with questions um so i was I'm always quite impressed by writers who already know what they're going to say um and and just sort of write that down, whereas I have things I want to understand, and this is how I approach it. And also, but I think that mm. makes the book feel really
3: alive. Mm. I think, you know, you can feel that when you're reading it, the sense of you're working through some of these questions, and you're open to different sort of ways of navigating them. Yes,
0: and and I also really enjoy connecting dots that weren't connected before, and really curiously wonder. And I think this is also one of the things that We are being robbed of in the political discourse. Only some people are allowed curiosity. Some others are forced into the role of having to answer, to be responsible for, to be representatives of. And to me, curiosity means to be allowed to be. And then to explore from where you stand and then walk through the world and try and understand it, from looking at through someone else's eyes and connect the dots. So to me, it was also a very empowering moment to then say, because that to me is speaking, to be allowed to curiously explore rather than having to answer what others have imposed on me as knowledge I have to have simply because of the projections they have onto me. So I I must say, I really do enjoy this and I don't want to ever give that up, although I know it's a lot easier to fulfil that role of, you know, saying the things that I expected of you to say. So, um, yeah, I think curiosity is a very empowering element to anyone who is marginalized. Uh,
3: you, you made a brief reference to your multilingualism, which is something that sort of, again, c- comes in and out of focus in the book. And I think one of the really striking things that you say is when well, you talk about how some kinds, some languages are more valorized than others and some kinds of multilingualism are more valorized than others. And you frame multilingualism as a reminder that there's no one particular way of naming or describing or categorizing that's absolute, and that, that multilingualism can teach us something about what not to do with language,
0: I suppose. I think the moment you speak more than one language, you understand that the world can look very differently. And and then you travel through worlds. And to me, this did create some instill some sense of humbleness in. Me, as in not knowing what there is still to explore, and an understanding of how little I have covered with the very few languages I speak. One of the languages that inspired me most while writing this book was the language of Potawatomi, a language spoken by an indigenous um, uh, tribe in the north of the US, um, in Oklahoma, and today's Oklahoma. A language whose speakers were subjected to a genocide, and a language that is only spoken when uh, by very few people. And at the at one point, Robin Wall Kimura, who is part of this um, group, she describes how there are only uh, nine nine fluent speakers of this language. And the the beauty of this language is that their grammar not only encompasses the perspective of us humans, but they have various uh, pronouns for insects, water, mountains, plants, flowers, trees, which allows the people who speak this language to view the world, not only through a human angle, a human perspective, but also through the eyes of all the other um, creatures we share and inhabit this planet with and she for instance uses this word pupuwi it's one of the very first words she has encountered in this language and this really widened um, her horizon and pupuwi roughly translates into the force with which a mushroom pushes itself away from earth up towards the sky and you know you might think of this as a you know, very... Um, sort of a very specific phenomena in nature that has a specific name. But the beauty of this word is that you watch this whole phenomena unfold through the eyes of the earth. So you watch how this mushroom pushes itself away from earth towards the sky, uh, you know, bypassing humans who believe themselves to be at the center of the universe. And this language alone really did raised this question to me of how differently we'd be debating the climate justice, climate crisis if we, you know, in our daily lives were used to look at the world not only through human eyes but also through the eyes of trees and water. And, And this language is spoken by very few people but that does not devalue its unique perspective quite the contrary. And a lot of privilege in today's world is connected to the audience you will gain through speaking a certain language, um, the money you will be able to make by speaking a certain language. And this is how we have come to value um, uh, languages, um, not only culture and heritage, but also uh, um, economic power in today's world that you know has led to many people for instance to teach their children Chinese so that they might be able to do business with that part of the world so this is how privileges also change but this language is a beautiful example that um, there's beauty in every language even if it's only spoken by nine people
3: yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was reading that part of, of that book, it did make me reflect on sort of the the anthropocentrism that is embedded in so many of our languages and the ways in which that informs our attitudes towards things like climate mm. crisis. And I don't know if you you know her, but there's um there's a Dutch uh, scholar called Ava Meyer who's written a book called When Animals mm. Speak, which is talking about the ways in which we assume that animals are silent but actually we are silencing the languages that they are speaking and we need to think of new ways of facilitating communication rather than just not, not listening.
0: Yes, and, and I, it has changed the way I walk through the world. I mean, just imagining you know, right now I'm sitting in an office and looking out there into, you know, in Cambridge and I'm looking out into the front yard of this department and there's a tree but it's quite alone, uh, as in it's surrounded by a little fence and then, you know, there are stones everywhere. So there are no other trees close by. And um, for some reason, we do think we give life and we do allow things to be there when in fact, sometimes we don't, we quite we do the opposite. Um and just to wonder what kind of story this tree would tell about this department and all the people passing it by, and that we are being perceived by the things we deem to be merely objects.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, one of the things that struck me was your book. is a book about dialogue, but it's also about the limitations of dialogue in lots of different ways. So it's about learning when dialogue is possible, and productive, and when we should perhaps step away from the table and decide not to engage. You know, what are those moments when when we should do that?
0: I think one of those moments are when we hopefully, soon enough, (laughs) realise that not all participants of that discourse are sitting at the table, but some are lying on the table and we cut through their flesh and... uh, Um, analyze and wonder, curiously explore their humanity by cutting through their flesh. So anytime the very existence of people are um, in question and are debated, these are the debates we should not engage in. And that's also, I think, one of the, you know, uh, when we talk about civility, you know, everyone is asking for civility, and I'm very much in favor of that. But sometimes... Um, it is impossible to speak in civility when when you when when your uh, flesh is being cut through, and then we expect for from those people to you know be calm and um, you know give reasonable uh, responses and all of that and then civility becomes a form of uh, dehumanization by um, forcing people to not react in the most human way and that is to yell to cry in pain to show emotions so I think that is a question worthwhile asking is anyone lying on the table at the moment as we speak but um, I've also come to understand that we should what one of the elements I saw as part of us having a destructive culture in our our political discourse is that we are incentivized to pretend we have the full answer and to enter the stage with some form of absolutism. And then we encourage and incentivize people to um, fight and, you know, be in a battle um, over who's who speaks the real truth, quote unquote, and then win over the audience, rather than to actually truly listen. And that doesn't mean both sideism. What I actually want to uh, um, advocate for is, maybe it helps to use an example from Indian philosophy, but it's also very common in many philosophical and religious traditions, and that is the image of this dark room, and in this dark room there's a huge elephant, and then people are invited in to describe what an elephant is, and some will say elephants are soft, long animals, someone else will say elephants are thin, hairy animals, and another person will say elements are heavy, leathery animals, and all of those perspectives are simultaneously true, although contradictory. The moment one of these perspectives is being regarded or uh, is being seen as the universal objective neutral perspective onto the world um, we will not only oppress all the other perspectives but we'll also miss the opportunity to understand what there really is so the task of the public should actually be to contextualise perspectives, to bring them together, to create a great understanding of what it, what there is. And that is only possible through some form of humbleness with which we should enter the public discourse. Again, that doesn't mean that whenever we discuss something, we have to consider all perspectives. Say, if we were to discuss the danger that... Um, Um, uh, the threats that could be caused by elephants we could I think in good conscience um, neglect the perspectives of those who uh, want who describe the beautiful and long eyelashes of elephants because in that moment that is not relevant to the context it is true but not, not, not necessarily relevant so To use it um, in in practice, for instance, would mean if we were to debate the institution of police, to some this institution um, means security and peace and order, and to other people the very same institution means threat, racism, murder these very contradictory perspectives are simultaneously true. What happens in the current public discourse is that we ask who speaks the real truth, quote-unquote, so they have to each enter the public domain with absolutism and win the audience over. But what we should actually do is um, bring these perspectives together, and that means if this institution is not able to provide peace and safety and security for all, one, how can it do it? Two, is it able to do it? Three, are the alternative ways um, to implement peace and security in a society rather than uh, criminalising uh, certain people and, uh, and actions? And we don't even come to the point of asking one, two or three because we're stuck at the point of who speaks the real truth. And the very same dynamic we can see with uh, discussions and debates on sexism, uh, climate change and climate crisis, as well as um, uh, poverty and uh, the economic crisis and racism. So to overcome that in our public discourse, we need to learn to contextualise and to um, create a space where you can only enter through some form of understanding for your limitedness.
3: Yeah, I mean, it it does seem clear that this focus on one truth seems to be rendering actual dialogue impossible. Mm. It it makes dialogue a a disagreement straight from the start, rather than us thinking, as you say, about the
0: complementarity, I suppose, of those different perspectives. Yes, I mean, people are rightly advocating for dialogue, but you can't be in a dialogue with a person who is not ready to listen because they are so full of their absolutism. So that becomes a crucial element. Is there an understanding for one's limitedness? And if there isn't, if uh, there is a lack of humility, you can't have a sincere dialogue.
2: Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content, and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side. Hello from Intelligence Squared. We'd like to invite you to explore the next live streamed event in the Futureverse, our series produced in partnership with Ytree. In this event, and in the two podcasts that will follow it, we'll be examining a huge cultural shift that we're calling the Value Revolution. Ever since another transformational period, the Industrial Revolution, there has been a global consensus about what constitutes value. Products and services can be exchanged for money, which in turn pays for other products and services. But we are now in an era of disruption. Technology, disease and climate change are some of the key factors that have recently caused us to pause and re-examine our lives. We have entered the value revolution. How do we define value now? And how has this changed over time? Who has a say over what is deemed valuable or worthless? Join us to discuss these questions and more in our next event, Reimagining Worth, with guests including longtime FT columnist and now charity founder, Lucy Kellaway, Adrienne Buller, author of *The Value of a Whale*, a book that examines the truth of green capitalism, and the banker, co-creator, and host of the award-winning *Money Maze* podcast, Simon Brewer. The event will be moderated by award-winning journalist and broadcaster John Sopel. Register to join us live online on Tuesday, fifth of July, from six thirty p.m. Just go to y-tree.com/futureverse. That's y. Y-tree tree.com slash
3: futureverse so one of the other limits or threats to dialogue that, that you raise in the book is i suppose the burden of labor placed on certain kinds of people marginalized people to explain themselves or to translate themselves and you give us this useful distinction between the labeled and the unlabeled, so the labelled who are people who are marginalised usually by a virtue of their, or perceptions of their race, sex, gender, sexuality or class, and often reduced to their label and not seen as um, individuals, and then the unlabeled who seem to sort of pass freely in language without being reduced to these types.
0: Yeah, so in the book, I, actually there's an anecdote uh, I'd like to show if, if we do have the time. So I did not plan to write that kind of uh, analogy. And, you know, like I said earlier, I, I wrote with a lot of questions. But the book and I got into an argument because I wanted to stick to my deadline. <laughs> and the book came up with this analogy. And um, so in that time, while we were debating, I was invited to a conference, um, a, a conference on justice and law. And on my way there, I saw a friend who is a lawyer and I talked to him about this. And he said, not only should I write it down, but I should also present it at this conference. So I went there, did that and something really interesting happened. I'm going to share with you what happened uh, in a minute um but maybe quickly to roughly explain what this museum of language is so um The Museum of Language is an invitation to imagine language like a physical space, like a museum, like a huge space where you can find all the things you know from the outside world, things of the past, the present, the future, different plants, insects, water, mountains, thoughts and ideas, ideologies and different concepts and theories and um, fictional lives, real lives, um, different colours and all of these things can be found in this museum of language. They are labeled and categorized, and you can spend your entire life in this museum of language and travel through time and space without ever leaving this museum of language. And in this museum of language, there are two types of people, you know, you named both of them, the labeled and the unlabeled. The unlabeled are people who are so close to the norm that they don't need to be named. They can walk freely through this museum of language and explore all of the things I just mentioned. Um, they never wonder why there is a wall at one place and why a certain word is missing or they don't even notice that there is a word missing or uh, that there is something missing because those who curate this museum of language who decide what comes in and what doesn't, what is named what and what kind of definition things get are also unlabeled. So the unlabeled can walk freely through this museum and their privilege becomes even more Evident when we look at the second type of people in this Museum of Language, and those are the labelled. The labelled are the people who are who, in one way or another, are different, considered to be uh, perceived to be different than the um, unlabeled. And the unlabeled want to understand the labelled, but not, not as individuals, but as a category as a whole. So they give them a label, um, and that label creates a category, a glass cage in the Museum of Language, and a definition, a definition uh, based on the things unlabeled people find interesting about the labeled. And the uh, this definition defines the uh, spaciousness of this glass cage in the Museum of Language. So some people uh, um, live in the Museum of Language curate it in these glass cages and then they run against those glass cage walls and and because they don't fit to the category they've been uh, um, 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 sort of put into and that causes pain so they now only walk walk maximum distance to the definition of their category and uh, degenerate into caricatures of themselves into stereotypes Others, however, however, keep walking against those glass cage walls. They create cracks, um, their foreheads start bleeding and they almost make their way out. But then the inspection begins. The unlabeled want to understand, quote unquote, the labelled. Uh, why don't you fit your category? And this person is now being analysed every inch of their body, their being, the texture of their skin, their hair, the way they live and love. And all of these things are being scrutinised and analysed. And those people allow that scru- um, scrutiny, that kind of dehumanising inspection to happen because they believe that at the end of this, they will be granted freedom. But at the end of this inspection, they are introduced into a new, slightly larger glass cage that um, has been now adjusted based on the answers they gave through the throughout the inspection. And some are then happy in this slightly larger glass cage and others uh, run again against those glass cage balls on their very first day. So I presented this analogy at this conference and then uh, something interesting happened. Uh, Together with me on the stage was a professor of law and she talked about the Anti-Discrimination Act in Germany and how old white men were amongst the groups of people who profited most uh, from this law, from this act, since they would, um, if they were um, subject to ageism, um, be quite successful in their claims and would get um, uh, um, sort of, um, at court, were quite successful with this and that they highly benefited from this anti-discrimination act. And people in the audience were quite appalled by this because, you know, they didn't think of that particular group when discussing Anti-Discrimination Act. And then uh, someone raised their arm. It was an old white man. And he expressed his discomfort about the way people were talking about old white men in this room. And then the discussion got even more heated. And I sat on stage and was quite um, amused to see a new element because now but well, maybe for the first time in his life, this person who has been regarded an individual was suddenly seen as a representative of. Maybe And then I intervened and explained what had happened in this room. This person, this old white man, all of a sudden, maybe for the first time in his life, experiences what it feels like to stand in front of another person and then a wall is being pulled between you and this other person and this person is unable to see you anymore. You speak, but you can't be heard. Maybe for the first time in his life, he knows what it feels like to be seen as the representative of. All of the sudden, instead of doing the things he wanted to do, he's now busy un- trying to understand what the other people he is now being put into the same category are doing, why Why they're doing this, trying to produce knowledge around this, trying to explain himself All of a sudden, instead of doing what he wanted to do, he's now busy trying to prove that he is not like those negative stereotypes around his uh, category, that he's not sexist, not racist. All of a sudden, simply because now he's being labelled, he leads a different life. Instead of being an individual, he's now busy trying to prove that he's not what they think he is. So for the first time maybe in his life, he experiences what it feels like to suffocate in a glass cage and he only experienced that though in that in that very room so physically and time-wise limited only in that brief moment that small space on this planet earth he experienced something that all of the other people I had shared the stage with didn't know any any different for their whole lives so what I'm advocating for is not to say, okay, uh, everyone has to be labelled so that they can feel the how, how it's like to suffocate in those labels. But what I'm actually advocating for is to understand that those labels are just tools, like those words we use when we describe nature. We use different colours, and these colour names, right, they are just um, names we use to describe certain parts of the spectrum of colours, because we also know that you can have very elaborate discussions on whether colour is green or blue or whether it's orange or yellow. So these tools are not simply tools. Those rooms and this museum of language are simply rooms. We turn them into glass cages in, in, when we um, live with the ignorance of knowing who someone is simply because we've put them into the right category. Oh, um, you know, you're a Muslim woman, I know who you are, you're a refugee, I know who you are, you're a trans woman, I know who you are. This ignorance, this absolutism, the illusion of knowing, however, is nothing that only individuals um, develop throughout their lives. This is incentivized in our public discourse, in our um, institutions of education, um, in culture and society, So what we do need to learn is to create spaces where you can curiously explore the world with humility.
3: Why do you think we are so fixated on
0: categorising things? I mean, historically, this is how we created dominion, right? Um, We... This is how our respective countries felt legitimised to travel into other places on planet Earth and call these places theirs simply because they gave those places a new name uh, by ignoring the perspectives of those people who lived there before, of indigenous people. Um, By naming, we have created power over nature and other human beings, and we do that to this day In academia, to this day, um, our knowledge production is um, a tool of power over others who is deemed free, who is deemed uh, progressive and uh, democratic, and how do we sometimes misuse these to legitimise entire wars. So um, I would say that naming and categorising is a very powerful tool and unfortunately often um, misused as a form of oppression.
3: I'm wondering if we could come back to one of the things that that we started talking about earlier, which is the idea that maybe some things can't always be translated or shouldn't always be translated. There's a great moment in your book when you're asking what things are lost when they're translated into purely secular language, mm. um, and I'm fascinated in these questions about these questions because I, I'm a sort of a philosopher of religion uh, by training. Yeah. But I think there's something incredibly powerful about resisting the pressure to translate everything or to make everything completely
0: transparent. I mean this especially becomes a problem when you translate into a language that is not well equipped for what you want to translate so if you want to translate religiosity into a secular language that does not have the uh, is not well equipped to encompass that you end up uh, changing what you want to translate in a fundamental way. So, the example I give in the book is like trying to explain to someone who doesn't understand the concept of love why you are with your partner. And then you give all these different explanations because you don't want to just translate, but you also want to be understood. And With that expectation, what happens is that you you give one answer and it's not really um, uh, sufficient for this person because they still are not satisfied with the answer. So you give another answer and another answer and another answer. And at one point, you end up saying, he or she gives me financial stability, which is definitely not the reason why you are with your partner. But you end up saying that because in that language, that is the only satisfactory answer that will make someone else understand it. And, and then they will yep. say, oh, and you will be for a brief moment, maybe <laughs> a relief that they finally understood you just to realise that you've given a, an, ex, an, an answer that is not accurate.
3: I was also thinking about this in relation to empathy and, and maybe there also being a pressure to make one empathise with the other, if you like. And the way that empathy is such a sort of strong currency in our cultures where we think in order to be respectful or to behave, to generate justice, we need to be able to empathize with everybody and how this might be problematic given that empathy is so dependent on similarity
0: and proximity. Yes, and I think the beauty of developing one's own tools of empathy is to stretch yourself to a point where you might be able to reach a point where you can look at yourself. So to me, one of the trainings I involuntarily did was when I was confronted with hate. And I really did want to understand why they would view me in a certain way and certain manner. And it was a painful process, but a very beautiful process at the same time, because I came to see the world through very different eyes, and to look at myself through um, their perspective, and and I could understand certain things that I didn't understand before. Um, it um, it can really widen your horizon, and I'm not saying that we should all learn how to look at the world through hateful people's eyes. Um, what I'm rather advocating for is to create our own tools and bridges to look at the world through someone else's eyes rather than just trying to impose our perspective onto someone else because this is also what um, you know, this need for, this desire for proximity, proximity as a tool of empathy does because we uh, want, don't want to leave our perspective um, and, and impose our perspective onto others. Um, which might not in any way be true, but then we are living in the illusion of we are the same when in fact we're not. So um, to learn how to look at the world through radically different eyes is, I believe, um, a, a beautiful pursuit since it does allow us to have a great understanding of the world.
3: And I think you're suggesting that we need to be willing to make ourselves uncomfortable. In order to do that, rather than sort of staying in our positions and projecting, we need to be able
0: to do something more radical. And, and also, I would advocate that for some people, it is a radical act to learn how to look at the world through your own eyes. Because when you are, when you grow up in a culture, when you are being looked at, when you from a very young age are trained to answer the questions of others about your hair, your skin, your family, your religion, and sort of wonder about whether penguins can fly or why trees grow upwards. it, it can become a very emancipatory act to learn how to look at the world through your own eyes. Because women, um, uh, racialized groups, um, any marginalized group in our society learns how to survive and live in a society by always also having this the the this double consciousness Web Dubai talks about, right? The consciousness of mainstream society, how they will view you. So you enter a bus and don't want to look threatening. So you behave a different way because you always also consider the perspectives of others. So you are trained in looking at yourself through someone else's eyes. And in those cases I would say it can it is an emancipatory act to radically be yourself and look at the world through your own eyes. And honestly, it's a lifelong process as well to learn how to use your own sets of eyes um, because most people don't know how to use their eyes. Don't, you don't learn how to look at the world through their own perspective. One of the tasks and, and uh, thought um, games that does help to train that is to ask yourself... Is there any emotion, any phenomena, any feelings I have experienced, seen or perceived um, that don't have any word in any language that I know of? And it's one of those beautiful sort of thought games that allow you to um, walk up to your horizon and then And then try and look at the world through your eyes in hope of discovering something new that was already there. And then maybe you can put this into language and introduce it.
3: Thanks for bringing us back to language. I can see how <laughs> you're thinking about all of these issues It's always sort of um, entangled in these these questions around language. I want to come to a point that you make in the book about our need to move beyond what you called old-fashioned notions of collective identity. So obviously, it's a book that's very much interested in self-fashioning and self-expression, particularly for people who've been denied the space to do that. I guess I'm interested in how those ideas of self-fashioning fit alongside more progressive ideas about collective identity and collective action?
0: Mm. It might sound contradictory to ask for individuality and to advocate for individuality, when this very neoliberal approach of we are all individuals, and as long as we you know work hard, we'll all make our way through this world successfully uh, and that this lack of solidarity leads to i would say most of the problems we are facing in today's world, so only superficially this is uh, contradictory because when i when I advocate for individuality, I am advocating for um uh, self-consciousness and for once beauty and complexity and multifacetedness but embedded in this world and embedded in our societies and understanding our interconnectedness and how we are dependent on one another and dependent on humanity the moment we deem our individuality to be the end of this world, the moment we live with the illusion of our horizon to mark the uh, the, the end of the world, yes, individuality will turn into destructive power, um, into even a form of oppression, um, where we've universalized this very limited perspective. But if we use individuality as a training to see complexity and multifacetedness and ambiguity. And if we use it to also understand the connectedness that there is, um, if we train our brain to understand, the um, uh, um, d- to contextualize information and perspectives, we then you can use this as a tool to bring people together. Because what happens in our respective societies at the moment is that obviously governments need to be um, uh, um, pragmatic. So what they do is they create the illusion of a norm of, of, of people in society and build structures around this, um, healthcare systems, uh, educational systems, etc., etc. What then happens is that... Um, because it doesn't encompass all the people in our societies, uh, people are structurally excluded and are then forced to name their differences as markers of identity and difference. Not because they um, that particular identity is necessarily important to them, but because this is what excludes them in society. So they have to refer to that. Um, marker of difference that structurally oppresses them and then they form a group identity around this to um lobby against the structural forms of oppression that have been based on this um, so when when we look at all these different groups who we deem as you know um people who um uh, create fractions or, um, you know, disrupt society or disrupt our sense of unity. What they actually do is prove that it's an illusion of unity. It's an illusion of oneness. And to have to To create true unity, you have to understand, not only understand our differences, but also create structures that allow our differences to be um, uh, uh, carried within our system. So during the pandemic, for instance, uh, I was working with um, some government officials and trying to find out how to act in a way Um, Because I was asking myself, okay, what is my task as a writer, as an intellectual, as an academic? And obviously, or rather not obviously, but uh, sadly, uh, my task seemed to be to wait for the government to do mistakes that were preventable, to then write essays about how they've done stupid things and then be applauded for that. Uh, So I wondered, can we help to um, prevent certain mistakes from happening? So we did a lot of work on this, and um, one of the things that I came to learn is that if you, if uh, people in charge in power understood their role as being servants of society and seek out. Um, um, and seek to know what happens at the fringes of society, at the margins of society, um before things escalate, before problems escalate to the point they can't be solved anymore, um, and then find out what happens at the margins and then build society and build structures and build uh, policies around the fringes and then move to the centre, what you would have is... A more holistic approach to society, and you would also avoid um, building structures around uh, a norm um, that truly no one really fits in, and and then you can create uh, a a you can create unity, and then you can create a sense of belonging, and then you can create um, an identity that people can feel comfortable in, but unless this identity, this sense of unity is based on an illusion. Uh, It will always be a marker of oppression. I've got one final question for you, which is sort of building on
3: those things that you've been saying about what we can do moving forward. So in the, towards the end of the book, you, you identify a tendency towards a sort of very judgmental culture, particularly on social media and those kind of environments where there's no space to make mistakes. And what you're advocating for is thinking about ways we can give people space to develop and learn and think without being shut down if they make those those mistakes as they're learning. Are some spaces better suited to that than others? Are some platforms better suited to that? How how can we sort of facilitate those?
0: Yeah, it's a interesting question because when we look into those spaces, right. Twitter, Facebook, and these different social media platforms, what they do is they rob us of our sense of time and space. So we become this very narrowed down version of ourselves because we have to time-wise and space-wise sort of reduce to one identity, when in fact in our daily lives we are Different, right? Within a day, we can be happy and sad, uh, joyful and uh, and extroverted and introverted. We speak differently depending on the spaces we speak in, with our children, our parents, our friends, our colleagues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the internet creates this very solid identity that is in no way truly who we are but uh, only the fraction that we feel we're allowed to show. And so uh, having no sense of time and space then also robs us of our sense of development and, and changing through time, because a tweet you've sent out 10 years ago is like you've said it now, because there is no sense of time. It looks like you've just said it. The moment you read it, it's like you've just said it in that moment. So what I'm advocating for is not only tolerating mistakes, uh, what I'm not advocating, because a lot of people are like, oh, we need to have a culture of tolerance towards mistakes. I think what we need to understand is that we are inherently dependent on mistakes to great, create a great understanding of what there is. Without mistakes, we will not be allowed or able in any way to progress. And I would say that these platforms are not designed to allow that kind of progress to happen. Quite the contrary. These platforms um, are designed to um, provoke, to um, engage intensely and most engagement is caused, as studies have shown, and as these algorithms have now uh, uh, um, been coded towards, is through provoca- provocation. And, and what happens is, say if we were in a restaurant and someone would enter this restaurant and just you know start yelling at people, we would react to this person, but not to um, sort of give this person attention, but to show that we don't accept that kind of behavior in that restaurant. And then at one point, either this person would leave or the restaurant manager would say, you either comply with our rules or you leave. On the internet, what happens is with every provocation, this person collects a new sets of a, a new eyes onto itself and a lot more attention with every provocation, uh, attention, 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 with every provocation. And unfortunately we mistake attention for relevance And all of a sudden, we then end up being in a public discourse where you have very loud voices that have no expertise whatsoever, no legitimacy to speak on a certain matter whatsoever, other than having an opinion and having a lot of people just, you know, react to it. So I would say these uh, spaces are not well equipped for that. That doesn't mean it's not possible. I'm just saying it's not incentivized to have that kind of discourse. That is also why I would advocate to create these spaces ourselves, either um, you know in our neighborhoods, in schools, at university, but also on national TV and our, our um, mainstream programs, because people have to see and witness how it, how a productive discourse looks like looks like. Because people we do imitate, we learn through imitation uh, before we become are users of tools. We first learn how to imitate. And if we don't witness that kind of um, productive discourse anywhere in our lives, we will not be people who live by that. Um, and so this is what I would advocate for. And I would say that most spaces are not incentivized for that.
3: So what we need to do is construct our public spaces in a different way to facilitate those kinds of dialogue.
0: Yeah, um, like people can still keep doing what they're doing, uh, uh you know i, I I'm not going to forbid them to have these destructive debates, but I-, I would very much uh advocate and ask for creating spaces where you can witness public thinking um where you can witness people with expertise who are willing to doubt themselves willing to listen to one another willing to contextualize their perspectives we can see new ideas emerge while you listen to people while they're talking to one another um, as a contrast to uh, what we are you know, these slapstick shows, these uh, spectacles we're so used to. I mean, at the beginning of each programme, we most of the times know what people are going to say, know what people are going to respond to. And I would say that a lot of people are very bored of that. And I do believe that to to think that this is what people want is to dumb down uh, your audience and to assume that they can't, navigate through complexity because this has nothing to do with your level of education, formal education, obviously. um, it has nothing to do with that. Every human being is able to navigate through complexity because this is what we do throughout our everyday lives. To dumb down people is an insult. To uh, only do these kind of formats is an insult to the public. Uh, we should at least try more constructive, productive debates. And then I'm sure we will see uh, that this will get an audience through time and it will change the way we debate. Thank you very much, Kubra. Thank you, Danielle, for the wonderful conversation. (laughs) Really enjoyed it.
3: Unfortunately, that is all we have time for. Kubra Gamusai's book is Speaking and Being, which is out now from Profile Books. I've been Danielle Sands. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thank you for joining us.
2: If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion, and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month ad-free listening and early access too. Currently available via Apple Podcasts, you just need to hit the subscribe button. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry, we're working on something for you too. Thanks for being a listener, supporting Intelligence Squared, and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too.
1: What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world,